The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter. Turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the Gospel of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, Allison and I separated, celebrated our eighth month, eight month, eight year, I'm going to start again. A couple weeks ago, Allison and I celebrated our eight year anniversary. We got married in August of 2015, and it's been a great eight years, blessed with many blessings. And I think a lot of you probably, though, don't know this about us and the time leading up to our marriage is it was a pretty short time. Our first date was in January, and we got married in August. It was seven months. Now, anybody who says you got a date for two or three years, I'll just say it, that's hogwash. If it's the right person, they're a Christian, they'd make a good husband or wife, a good father or mother, get married. The sooner, the better. But that's another sermon for another time. Well, we had a very short courtship, but the thing about that courtship was, it was long distance. She lived in Fort Wayne at the seminary in the Deaconess program, and I lived in New Jersey at my first call. And we had to travel to see each other during those seven months. And what we did was, we would take turns. I'd come to Fort Wayne, or she would come to New Jersey. Now, we added all that up once. I think it was right before, right after we got married. And we added up the time that we spent together in person between that first date and when we got married. If you can believe it, it was about 30, 31 days, thereabouts. One month of time in person between nice to see you, nice to meet you, you want to go out sometime, and you know, making the promises before God and the world. Now, I bring this up not to talk about our marriage as much, but to give you an illustration, an illustration about context, okay? So that's the backdrop to what I'm about to tell you. There was once when Allison was visiting me in New Jersey, and 
we had a service or something. I'd done church things, so I was dressed in my clerical attire. Not, not this, but I had my blacks on, my shirt, my slacks, and my clerical collar. And when the service was done, I think she was going to leave the next day or something like that. So we were running around the corner from Good Shepherd to one of my favorite restaurants in New Jersey, the Randolph Diner. And we had lunch there. And we just went in, normally do, to a restaurant and sitting there. We think we ordered and we were waiting for the food to come. And we were talking. You're going to be, you know, after the next day, it could be a few weeks before we'd see each other again, maybe a month or so. And we were talking. I think I was holding her hand across the table, on top of the table, just holding, talking, looking at each other the way that you do when you're love-struck, love-sick, or whatever, and having a great conversation. And then it occurred to both of us about the same time. We caught it out of the corner of our eye, and we turned over and looked, and there was this table at this diner of old New Jersey guys, in all likelihood Italian Catholics, just staring. <laughs> staring at this young priest. So brazenly, openly holding the hand of a young woman, and you could read it, it was on their face. They didn't say a word to us, and it took them a second to realize that we saw them, and they went back to their coffee, talking about whatever it was, and, but they were confused and perplexed. I bet had a lot of questions to say the least. Of course, we know why it's funny, right? Roman Catholic priests cannot get married. It's a life of celibacy for them. New Jersey's a very Catholic culture. You see a guy, especially wearing the little tab collar, you just assume that it's a Roman Catholic priest until otherwise. And that's what it looked like. It looked like Father had his girlfriend that he wasn't supposed to have, and he was getting bolder and bolder with it being out in the public. Now, we understand, again, why it's funny, not just because of those reasons, but they, they were missing the context of it, right? They didn't know I was a Lutheran. They didn't know that Lutheran pastors can't get married. They didn't know that she was, yes, my, I think at that point, fiancé, and it was a long-distance relationship. It's okay to hold hands, and we certainly were. Had they known all of the details, what they would have seen there in that restaurant would have made a lot more sense to them. It would have made sense if they had the fuller context. We've talked about it before in sermons that it is easy to misunderstand some things in the Bible, to take them out of their context and to not really understand what the Lord is trying to say in these instances. And I think it's especially true with the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels. If you were to, in isolation, look at most of the parables, not all of them, but a lot of them, a lot of them seem to suggest that Jesus is teaching us that we are saved by something that we do. Do this thing and you will be saved. Just consider for examples, parable of the talents. When you read that, it seems at the end the guy is judged because he didn't do as much as the other guys. So his talents are taken and given to them. You have the parable of the unforgiving servant. How does it seem to suggest that parable that you are saved in the end? Well, the operative thing that you've got to do to be saved is to forgive other people when they wrong you, and that's how you're saved. That's the one thing you have to do. Even Jesus' own description of the last day with the separation of the sheep and the goats, he says himself, whatever you did to the least of these my brothers you did to me, enter into the joy of heaven. 
It's easy at first glance to completely misapply a parable, a parable to read it, to hear it, and outside of its fuller context to not get the point. And today's parable about the Good Samaritan is absolutely no different. It's a popular parable, to be sure, is it not? If someone gave you a sheet of paper and said, write down the name of ten parables, this would almost certainly be one that would appear on everybody's sheet of paper. Most people, even non-Christians, know it at least in summary. And if they don't know it in summary, they know the name. They've heard Good Samaritan before, probably in a hospital. And frankly, this parable is one that, when I've encountered it in the wild, I often encounter it in a way which I think sort of misses Jesus' point about it. It misses the fuller context, and people have a, not a great application of it. It's popular today, but I think the most common one you'll find this parable sort of shoehorned into is saying, well, if you got, I don't know how many million it's up to, 80 million illegal people in the country, well, if we're going to really truly keep Jesus' word, we've got to give them amnesty. If you don't do that, you're not being a good Samaritan. I've heard that more times than I can count the last 10 years. And I don't know. I'd say, though, to be, to be fair, that's not missing the context. That's just good old-fashioned misappropriation. You'll find that with Bible passages, too. But perhaps more popular in recent years and certainly recent generations is you have this parable of Jesus, the Good Samaritan, used to illustrate the Christian ethic. Okay? How do we live, how do we love as Christians in the world where God has placed us? Now, obviously, of course, there's a lot of truth and goodness to using this parable to illustrate that. Actually, I'd say this is one of the ones you ought to use, right? Because it has both the summary of the law and the lawyer's answer, greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second greatest, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then after that interaction, Jesus gives this as a story of how do you do it, okay? How do you love your neighbor? Who do you love? But I often find when people have that view or have that view exclusively, they sort of stop there. They say, well, that's all that needs to be said or gleaned or talked about in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Christian, how do you live? You have a neighbor in need, so you love him. And that's just sort of the full stop. It's the end of the story, the end of the context. But I think what that's the whole, when that is the whole frame for the parable, when that is as far as what is said, you know, love people the way that the Samaritan loved the hurt Jew on the side of the road who was mugged, I think we are missing the fuller picture, we're missing the broader context, and we run the risk just of driving like those other misunderstandings of making this parable about works righteousness. Go to heaven by doing good things and God will love you. Now, of course, absolutely, Christians ought to love their neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is God's law. And guess what? God's law is a good thing. It's his will. How can it be bad? His law has this beautiful function of when we follow it, it keeps us safe. It curbs outbursts of sin. It's the wonderful law which does show us that we need a Savior by accusing us of our sins. And it's a wonderful law which answers that question that Christians naturally have. I'm forgiven and saved. Well, now what? What do I do now? 
It's a rule for our lives. A guide, even better. But as a guide, it's not something that for the Christian ought to remain abstract, just up here. Like, I know these answers from the catechism about what the law is and what it does, but I, that's just sort of where it stays, in the head and head knowledge. I think we all understand this on a gut level, right? Nobody just talks about loving their wife or their husband or their children and then doesn't let that manifest it in an actuality, or at least nobody who's sincere about that love. Nobody who is a Christian who truly loves their family will just love them up here, or even love them only in here, but not love them with these things, as it were, our bodies and our actions. And the thing is, with this parable and all of the others that tell us about how do we live, what do we do, we need to keep then this in view, the broader context of the person and the work of the one who told them to us. So the parable of the Good Samaritan by itself, just being told, could be told by anybody, but it just seems to be telling you what to do. But when you remember that who told it to us, Jesus Christ, well, that's the broader picture. That's the whole frame that helps us understand this parable and ones like its peace in the big picture of our Christian life. Any parable can seem like it's legalism, just telling us what to do to please God. But only, it's only that way if you ignore the wider context of who's saying them, the Lord Jesus. The Jesus who would die to atone for our sins so that we might be forgiven. The Jesus who says, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That's the Jesus who's part of the parable itself. The one telling the parable includes, what the parable includes also him and his work. It has to. The whole picture is Jesus and also what he said and did and promised. And that is the needed context for the parable of the Good Samaritan and all of the rest of them too. Jesus tells us who and how to love absolutely. Yes, our neighbor and love him generously. Go and do likewise, he says. But here's the thing for Christians. We are indeed motivated, driven in that love because of the one who told us these parables, because of Jesus Christ and what he has already done for us. That's the context for go and do likewise. You know, I just said that and over the course of nine minutes, but John says it even better and shorter in one sentence in his first letter, John, 1 John. We love because Christ first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And indeed, as Christians, that is true. So, you, the baptized, the redeemed by Christ, redeemed by his blood, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your spouse, love your parents, love your children, your grandkids, your aunts, uncles, your co-workers. Love your actual neighbor who lives next door, the one you like. Love the one you don't like who lets poison ivy grow on his fence line. Love him. Love him because Christ loved you. If you find a Jew on the side of the road, stop and love him too. Love your neighbor. And do it, yes, because Jesus tells you to do it but not just for that reason. 
Do it because you first have been loved by your Savior and Lord. Amen.